But I met my first con artist, that is someone who cheats or tricks others by persuading them to believe something untrue. I met my first con artist when I was like a freshman or sophomore in college. She said that her name was Courtney and that she was from Minnesota. Courtney, the con artist from Minnesota, I met her in a college career church group. And she said she was from Minnesota, and she said that she was out here as a nanny, working a job, taking care of kids all day long. I met her at this church group, and in a couple of months, I soon realized that she was a con artist. It wasn't like off the bat, I realized you're a con artist, but it took quite a bit of time. The first question I usually ask somebody, especially if they're from Minnesota, the most natural thing is, well, how long have you played hockey for? And her response was, oh, well, ever since I was a kid, I've played hockey, and I've played on this team and that team, blah, 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 right? And then we go a couple weeks later ice skating. And as I watch her slip and slide all over the ice like she's never been on it before, her whole, oh, I've been playing hockey for years on this team and that team, blah, 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 it just didn't make sense. It didn't add up. And I tried to give her the benefit of the doubt, like, oh, well, maybe it's just that she, you know, wasn't used to the skates. Or maybe she hadn't done it in a long time. Or maybe the ice quality wasn't up to par. Well, other things began to add up. It had a lot to do with her behavior. She would go from happy-go-lucky and then seesaw into a grave illness or a panic attack. And it was really hard to figure out what was going on. It didn't add up. And then a good friend of mine also began to realize a lot of different things that also didn't add up. My friend's name is Carrie, and she uh, was really close with this Courtney, the con artist from Minnesota. Well, Carrie began to notice that money was missing, that clothes suddenly disappeared. And then the strangest thing ever was that Carrie found my driver's license in her bedroom on her nightstand. Now, I had never been in Carrie's house or her bedroom, and so this was impossible. How could this possibly be? And we talked about it, and like, no, I didn't pick up your driver's license or anything like that. The only outcome, the only, the only thing that it could have been was Courtney, the con artist from Minnesota. Well, I got a phone call a couple weeks later Late in the night, two phone calls, actually. The first one came from Carrie. The second one came from the father who had employed Courtney, the con artist from Minnesota. And they both said, Courtney has run away. She ran away when she was confronted about all of the credit cards that she had stolen and all of the charges that she had racked up. She was an identity thief. She had run away. When the police got involved, more came to light. We came to understand that she was from Minnesota, but there was a warrant out for her arrest. And if memory serves me right, I think it was the next morning she finally did turn herself in, and it was to J-Rod, the father, 
also of this family, and a police officer at Denny's in Camarillo. But after this whole experience, we realized that Courtney, the con artist from Minnesota, she had betrayed us. She had broken our trust, broken our hearts, and had taken advantage of us. You know, when it comes to the Apostle Paul and his letter of 2 Corinthians, he assures the Corinthian believers that he has not taken advantage of them, that he is not a con artist, but he's afraid that the Corinthians have, in fact, taken advantage of him and his ministry. If you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand tonight as we read from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to begin with just a couple of verses, verse 14 and 15. It says, look, I'm ready to visit you a third time, and I won't be a burden on you. I don't want your things. I want you. It isn't the children's responsibility to save up for their parents, but parents for children. I will very gladly spend and be spent for your sake. If I love you more, will you love me less? God, we come before you tonight, and we don't want to be frauds when it comes to our faith. We don't want to be Christians who are con artists, who live multiple lives. But Lord, we want to be the same in here and out there. We want to be people of integrity and righteousness. Lord, help us to be the people that you want us to be. We love you and we praise you. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. You can give a little golf clap. That's all right. You can, you can clap it up for God. So we're going to go through this verse by verse. We're going to do a lot of table talk tonight. So uh, let's dig into it. We're going to begin with verse uh, 14a the first of our section. It says, look, I'm ready to visit you a third time and I won't be a burden on you. I don't want your things, I want you. On his first visit, Paul established the church at Corinth and stayed there for a year and a half. His second visit was very brief and also very painful. But now he's prepared to come for a third time and he's saying, I want to be financially independent of you Corinthians. I don't want to get paid. In fact, what I really want, what I really want most is your love and your affection. I want spiritual maturity and pure, complete devotion to Jesus. That's what he says here at the end of verse 14a. I don't want your things. I want you. I don't want your things, I want you. And this is the heart that Jesus has toward us. I don't want your things, I want you. And we often think that what God really wants is what we can do for him, what we can achieve for him, and all of the things that we could muster up and, and become this person where God just wants us. He wants our hearts. He wants our lives entirely. It's not the stuff, it's us. And then Paul uses this image of a family to draw this out in verse 14b. He says, isn't, the children, isn't it the children's responsibility to save up for their parents, but parents 
Let me read this again. That was backwards there. It isn't the children's responsibility to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And you may think, well, is Paul talking about elder care here? Like we shouldn't worry about old people in our family? No, he's not talking about elder care, whether or not we should put them in convalescent homes or anything like that. But he's speaking about how it's, the, it's not the kid's responsibility to pay the way for the parents. And I remember as a kid, my mom coming to us one, one afternoon, and she was in tears, and she basically said, I have like $68, $68, and we have to pay rent, and don't know how we're going to do it. And in that moment, I was like, well, what can I like pull together? I've got like teddy bears, and I've got some Legos and some toys, and it was a really like frightening time in our lives. We trusted God. We trusted God, and Paul's using this family analogy to say that it's not the Corinthian as like they were children. It's not the Corinthian's responsibility to pay the way of Paul. Instead, what he says is verse 15a, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your sake. As a loving parent, Paul says, I will spend myself entirely for your sake. This is the language of sacrifice. I will go bankrupt to buy you braces. I will dish out every dollar to take you to Disneyland. I will pinch every penny to put food on the table, clothes on your back, a roof over your head. I will give my very life for your sake. Some of us had parents like that. Some of us didn't. But Paul is... Envisioning here a loving parent. Paul planned to use all his resources to help the Corinthians, but here he asks a very interesting question. Verse 15b, if I love you more, will you love me less? If I love you more, will you love me less? There's a lot of hurt behind those words. It's painful to love more and be loved less in return. You know, that's not what we hope. We hope that the love that we express would be returned in equal fashion, but Paul knew, he knew with the Corinthians that life doesn't always work that way. We loved Courtney, the con artist from Minnesota, and we were heartbroken to find that our love for her was greater than the love that she gave to us that she loved us less, and that it was all a sham. So let's do some table talk tonight. This is like sour, sad stuff, but it's okay. We're going to get better tonight. Table talk. How do you respond when the love you feel you give is not returned in equal measure? So how does it feel? How does it feel when the love you feel is not returned in equal measure. How does it feel? Tell me. It hurts, right? Like heartbroken. Like your insides are just like chewed up, ripped up, run over a couple of times. It feels terrible, right? Well, that's what Paul is experiencing here. Verse 16 continues. We all know that I didn't place a burden on you, but in spite of that, you think I'm a con artist. 
who fooled you with a trick. But wait, what trick are we talking about? What trick, what scheme is Paul being accused of here? If we go back to 2 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul is accused of treating the Corinthians as second-class citizens. But even more damaging is this accusation that he's siphoning money from them. That, that this collection for those who are suffering in Jerusalem is just a way for Paul to feather his own nest, as the saying goes. In effect, Paul is accused of being a con artist, deceptive and duplicitous, a cheating, two-faced fraud. Let's do another table talk. You've just been accused, imagine this, you've just been accused of being a con artist, deceptive and duplicitous, a cheating, two-faced fraud. How do you respond? What do you say or do? Ready, go. This exercise is simply just intended to get us into the shoes, into the position of Paul. Like, what would I do if someone is accusing me of being a con artist, deceptive and duplicitous? But now that we have this idea of at least Paul's perspective, let's hear how he responds in verses 17 and 18. He says, I haven't taken advantage of you through any of the people I sent to you, have I? I strongly encouraged Titus to go to you and sent the brother with him. Titus didn't take advantage of you, did he? Didn't we live by the same spirit? Didn't we walk in the same footsteps? That is, in the same conduct of faith. I didn't take advantage of you, and neither did Titus. We, we are no con artists. He continues in verse 19. Have you been thinking up to now that we are defending ourselves to you? Actually, we are speaking in the sight of God and Christ. Dear friends, everything is meant to build you up. The Greek says it's for your edification. We're not here to defend ourselves, but we're speaking before God to edify you, to construct you, to build you up. And now in this next section, we get the I'm afraids. Paul says in verse 20, I'm afraid that maybe when I come, you will be different from the way I want you to be and that I'll be different from the way you want me to be. So there will be misunderstood, misrepresented expectations. I'm afraid that there might be fighting, obsession, losing your temper. Get that? Losing your temper. Not my temper, but Paul is saying you're probably going to lose your temper Competitive opposition, backstabbing, gossip, conceit, and disorderly conduct. Verse 21, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may embarrass me in front of you. I might have to go into mourning over all the people who have sinned before and haven't changed their hearts and lives from what they used to practice. Moral corruption, sexual immorality, and doing whatever feels good. These Corinthians have not been taken advantage of, but they are taking advantage of Paul and his ministry. I'm in a Bible study with a bunch of guys, and, and one of these guys in particular is really nice, kind, soft-spoken, brilliant man. And I just found out a couple of weeks ago that, that he's a police chief. And I'm like, what? I never would have known that you are a police chief. 
It's not that he's like a con artist or deceptive or duplicitous by any means, but I just never would have known. And I've learned a tremendous amount by studying the Bible with him because he always asks this question. He always takes it internal, whatever it may be. And we've studied some crazy stuff on this Friday morning Bible study. We've just gone through Judges, and now we're into Romans right now. And, And he always asks, like, what is this passage saying to me? Yeah, it says a lot for everybody else, but like, what is it saying to me? Like, what is God doing in me right now as I'm hearing these words, as as I'm reading them in scripture? What is God doing in me? What is he saying directly to me? And when I apply that logic to this passage tonight, I come up with a series of questions. How many of us are con artists? when it comes to our faith. That is, how many of us are duplicitous or deceptive, cheating, two-faced frauds? Where we come in here and we live a certain way, we behave a certain way, and we have a Christian lifestyle, and we speak even Christian language. And then we go outside, and our language is completely different, completely changed. And man, I have way too many stories about church folks who aren't church folks outside of the church. One lady screaming at the barista at Starbucks. I'm like, what could be so wrong in your world since you have the Holy Spirit residing in you and you have Christian brothers and sisters that would cause you to be screaming at the barista? I don't know. I don't have kids, so maybe that's the, that's the answer. Or, you know, another lady at the church who, she didn't know that my soon-to-be brother-in-law was... Uh, talking to her on the phone for big brand tire, and she was trying to order some tires. And the language that she was speaking was not Christianese. It was not nice. It was something less than that. And it was like, really? And he knows who she is, and he knows where she goes to church. And it's just like, man. But then I realized, like, man, I do stuff. If someone had a microscope on me, if someone had a had binoculars and followed me around, they would, they would might say that, man, he's a, he's a con. My wife's just doing binoculars at me right now. She probably knows. She's like, she's like, really? Really? You know, I mean, they say some of the, the hardest part for police officers is turning it off when they go home, right? Because they're dealing with so much craziness, a lot of garbage, And some of them take it home with them, and they're still the cop at home. And when it comes to the Christian life, yeah, I I don't want to be, like, preaching to to everybody in my home in a way that is, like, I'm higher or mightier than anyone. I I don't carry a little stage around with me wherever I go. But I think that we should not turn off being Christian wherever we go. And that's probably the hardest part of the Christian life is that when we are surrounded by other people, other people who may act differently or talk differently, or people from the past who we related to differently back then, it may be very difficult. I'll tell you a happy story. There was a a gentleman who is uh, not here tonight, 
but a, a faithful man who has experienced great heart change and life change. And he ran into another person. We were having a Bible study or something at Coffee Bean, and the guy knew him from before when he was not living a Christian life. And the guy asked him, well, what are you doing here with all these guys? Looks like there's a Bible study. And, and uh, our brother said, yeah, I'm trying to do things God's way now. Now, he could have said, well, I don't know. I'm just like just checking it out or, you know, I don't know, and just totally blow off the situation. But no, he came to this spot where he's like, I'm changing my life. I'm changing my heart. And that's exactly what we need to do. So what do we do with this situation when we feel like maybe I'm being a con artist with my faith? How many of us are deceptive? How many of us are duplicitous? How many of us, though, are willing to do something about it? And what do we do? So what I want you to do is some more table talk tonight. Read through 2 Corinthians in your Bibles. There might be some Bibles on the back there. 2 Corinthians 12, 20 through 21, and read it aloud. And then what is God saying to you in this passage? What is God doing in you in this vice list, this bad list of ungodly behaviors? Where do you struggle? And what are you going to do about it? Let's get real. Let's get honest with the people around us. Go ahead. You know, when it comes to the Christian life, when it comes to the Christian life, there are no just quick, simple, easy fixes. There's no quick, simple, easy fixes to some of the most trying, difficult situations that we go through and are also exposed to. I don't know if you guys have ever seen those TV commercials of like the, I don't even know what the product is called, but it's in a can and you spray it like on your roof that is leaking and it seals like your roof completely. Does anyone know what that product is called? What is it? Quick seal. There we go. Quick seal. And they, they spray it on the roof and they probably use like 50 cans to get a little square and then it is completely waterproof, completely sealed. And my favorite part of the commercial is always watching the guy like cut open the boat, and then he sprays it on the boat, and then all of a sudden it's quick and sealed, and it's completely fixed, right? And then the, the latest commercial, he's going in this motorboat across the lake, and I'm like, no way is this possible. My question is, why did you saw the boat in half in the first place? It's a perfectly good boat. You could have just kept it as is, or you could just fix the roof like it should be fixed rather than just quick and easy seal. Now, when it comes to the Christian life, like I said, there's no quick and easy seal for all the struggles and all the trials that we may go through or be exposed to. But what we can do is called repentance. And repentance is really, really difficult. You're going one direction and it feels good, it feels right, it feels like all of the things, but you know deep down it's not. It's nothing. It's overpromised, underdelivered. It's terrible. It's leading down the wrong path to darkness, and you turn, you repent, you change your heart and life, and you go the complete opposite way. The Hebrew is shuv. It literally means to turn, to turn. And so what we're going to do tonight is I want to do a communal prayer, a prayer as a community of repentance. So if you're able to stand, I invite you to stand and let's pray these words because I'm not going to have you each come up here and, and confess to me like, man, I'm dealing with sexual immorality and here's why. Or I'm dealing with backstabbing and gossiping. I mean, I'm, I'm like all of the above, that section. 
But instead, we know that there are issues, but we're not just going to sit in the mud and just be okay with it. We're going to turn from this and repent and live changed lives. And so as we see this prayer up on the screen, what I want you guys to do is you're going to read aloud, really like you mean it, like you're actually praying for repentance here. You're going to read the yellow part, and I'm going to read the white. We're going to read the yellow part together. Um, But here we go, okay? Let's assume an attitude of prayer. Lord, forgive us for the things we have done and not done. Forgive us for the things we have said and not said. Forgive us for the lives we have lived and not lived. May we instead reflect the image of the one we profess to follow in thought, word, and deed. May we draw others into that light. Lord, you are everything we desire. The everything we do not deserve. Lord, you are the love of our lives, the peace beyond imagining. Lord, you are the breath of life. You soften even the hardest heart. You are the vibrant color, illuminating the darkest dawn. For those days when we forget, forgive us. You guys with me still? All right, okay, we're just making a... When life distracts and focus shifts, forgive us. When self imposes its own will, forgive us. When our praise and worship fail to please, forgive us. We know that by your grace, we are forgiven. In your peace, our lives are lived. By your touch, we know your healing. And in your strength, we are made whole. Take our mustard seed of faith and let it grow. Take root and blossom in our hearts and lives. Through our Savior, Jesus Christ, and in no other name do we ask this. Amen. Thank you so much for being here tonight. I pray that we would leave this place not as con artists, but as people who are true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Don't forget, this Sunday we are going to be having beach baptisms after second service. It'll be an awesome time. I hope you will join us. Have a great rest of your week.